Hi, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to episode six of Digging Deeper. This weekly podcast takes a deep dive into a theme or subject and explores what the Bible has to say about it. Later in this episode, I'll be digging deeper into eternal punishment, answering questions about purgatory, annihilation, hell, and universalism. Is hell forever? But first, I was recently asked a fascinating question about the death of a murderer. Scott Allen Murdoch died in prison recently. In 2013, Murdoch murdered Kylie Blackwood. Did he get what was coming to him? And what should a Christian response be when a wicked person dies? Let's find out. All right, the question is about hell particularly and purgatory specifically. So I'm going to touch on purgatory first. And the question is very simply, Pastor Rob, do you believe in purgatory? The short answer is no. No, I do not believe in purgatory. Uh, Purgatory is a Roman Catholic doctrine, and uh, the Roman Catholics, I actually spoke to a friend of mine who is a Roman Catholic priest. He's a great young guy and uh, loves Jesus with a passion. So I contacted him and and we chatted about this uh, a while ago. And so from a Roman Catholic perspective, purgatory is a place or a state of suffering inhabited by the souls of sinners who are compensating for their sins before going to heaven. So I don't know really whether this is, you know, does Jesus not cover all of our sin? Are there some sins that are unconfessed when the person dies? And the viewpoint then is they have to go into purgatory for a while to have their sins purified or cleansed or burnt off, literally, before they are allowed to go into heaven. There's a few scriptures that are used uh, to back up Purgatory, none of them, when I look at them, none of them really speak to me of purgatory. Uh, One of them is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. The rich man dies and goes to a place of torment. And Lazarus, the poor beggar who was sitting outside um, uh, the rich man's house, uh, he dies and he goes to a place of paradise. So there's nowhere there that says that the guy the rich man is going to have his sins burned off and then get into uh, heaven. The rich man seems to be quite distraught by the fact that he finds himself in a place of torment with no escape. But we do have to remember that's a parable. And Jesus used lots of different stories. The content of the story may not have been true. So it might not have been a true story. Um, and and not all the details in Jesus' parables may have been true. That's not the point. Uh, The parables are always about identification. And so when you're reading one of the parables, a Hebrew mind would be going, who do I identify with in the parable? Who's me? And then from Jesus' perspective, who should I be? So reading that parable, you might think, oh my goodness, I'm living like the rich man lived. Who should I live like? I should have lived like Lazarus lived. And so, and I need to change my life as a result of that. Okay. So I don't think there's anything in purgatory 
uh, about the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, the next one is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. Let me read it to you. It says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now, if you were to take this literally, maybe you could squeeze the purgatory doctrine into there somewhere. When you look at the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is talking about himself as an apostle, and he's talking about other church leaders. And so pastors, teachers, apostles, leaders, of the church. And he's saying there's no other foundation that a church can be built on other than the foundation that is Jesus Christ. If uh, you're part of a church that is not laid on the foundation of Jesus, you need to look for another one. Okay. I can testify, and you know, if you're a part of Bayside Church, our church is laid very strongly on the foundation of Jesus Christ who he is, what he did, what he's doing and what he's going to do. That is our foundation. And then for people like myself as a church leader, we have to build on that foundation. And what we have to do is to make sure that what we build is actually going to last. And so if you notice there, the Apostle Paul uses a number of different elements. He talks about what we build on the foundation of Jesus in the church as being gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, or straw. And then he says, on the day of judgment, fire will be applied to what you've built. And so, of course, gold and silver are actually refined and made better through fire. Wood, hay, and straw cease to exist. Apply fire to wood, hay, or straw, and they're burned up. They cease to exist. And so for church leaders, it's important to make sure that what we build on the foundation of Jesus is actually the equivalent of gold, silver, and costly stones. It's it's priceless. And we need to make sure that what we build into people's lives is the truth of God that is going to transform them progressively into the image of Jesus Christ, something that's going to last. And so it's obviously this is not a literal story. Our, our uh, works can't be applied to fire. So, but Paul is using this metaphorical language to say some people, what we built on the foundation of Jesus, some of it's going to last, some of it won't. But our salvation is not in question. Notice that last line. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. So the salvation is not the question here. It's the quality of a leader's works in the church. Another scripture that is used to talk about purgatory is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, where it says our God is a consuming fire. But again, it, it really, it, it, it doesn't talk about purgatory. The only place where you could possibly get the doctrine of purgatory other than scripture is in the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees. Now, remembering that the Roman Catholic Church accept the apocryphal books in the Catholic Bible. The Protestant churches or the non-Roman Catholic churches don't include the apocrypha 
And so for Bayside, for example, for me personally, I don't include the Apocrypha as scripture. It's a lot of good history, and it kind of fills in the gaps between Malachi and Jesus. So it's about a 400-year period. It's often called the 400 silent years, but the apocryphal books kind of fit in there. So 2 Maccabees uh, dates to around about 120 BCE, so about 120 years before Jesus. And uh, chapter 12, verses 43 to 46 say this, And making a gathering, he, that's Judas Maccabeus, uh, who, by the way, was the hero of the Jewish Wars of Independence, which the Maccabean Revolt, uh, the Maccabees, 1 and 2 Maccabees, speak about that history, okay? So about the Maccabean Revolt, which was the Jews against the evil um, emperor Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, um, and then it concludes with the defeat of the Seleucid Empire and General Nicanor around 161 BC. Uh, he was defeated by Judas Maccabeus, and uh, so the Maccabeans uh, won in that particular instance. And so, and making a gathering, Judas Maccabeus sent 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem for sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the dead, thinking well and religiously concerning the resurrection. For if he had not hoped that they that were slain should rise again, it would have seemed superfluous and vain to pray for the dead. And because he considered that they who had fallen asleep with godliness had great grace laid up for them, it is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from their sins. And so it's from 2 Maccabees chapter 12, those verses 43 to 46, that we find uh, the concept or the, or the theology behind purgatory. In my opinion, you really don't find it um, in the Hebrew Scriptures and you certainly don't find it in the New Testament, from my opinion. So on the broader topic of hell, and I often get asked this uh, because people, and I find people are actually increasingly concerned about the doctrine of eternal torment or eternal hell. There are three main views on hell, uh, distinct because of the way that they view the purpose of the fire of hell. And understanding that hell in Scripture is talked about with various symbols, but the most often used symbol is the is the symbol of fire. And so there are three different views about this fire. One of them is the view that is basically the traditional view, the view that I was taught when I first became a Christian, the view I was taught in Bible college, and really what I have taught and clung to over the last 40 years, but can I say over the last few years, I have been more and more unsettled by, by the punishing view of hell, where fire is punishment, uh, the view of eternal conscious torment, or ECT, as it is abbreviated. So punishing fire, the second is purifying fire, which is purgatory, uh, also universalism. Uh, I'll go into these in a bit more detail in a moment. And then the third one is that the fire consumes. So that is annihilation or conditional immortality. And so the fire consumes the person and they actually cease to exist. So let me just touch on these for you very, very quickly. 
number one is eternal conscious torment. And that's the only view of hell most Christians, I would say most non-Roman Catholic Christians, get taught today. So most evangelical and Pentecostal charismatic believers would just be taught that hell is eternal conscious torment. As I said before, it's what I heard when I was converted to Christ in my late teens and early 20s. I didn't question it at the time, but over the last 35 plus years of my pastoral ministry, I am having increasing difficulty with eternal conscious torment. And I'll tell you why in a few minutes. So ECT teaches that hell is unending, that is conscious, that it is agonizing punishment for those who reject God's salvation through Jesus or for those who never accept him, even those who have never heard of Jesus. When I was in Bible college, we would be told that we had to get out there and preach the gospel because the souls of millions of believers are tumbling into hell every week. And that was the motivation that we should get out there and tell the gospel. And I believe that. Uh, for some Christian teachers and pastors uh, have used the doctrine of hell to motivate believers to spread the gospel. If people die without Jesus, they go to a lost eternity, we're told. If you were to die tonight, do you know if you would go to heaven or if you would be lost in hell? How many evangelists have we heard give that in the appeal? And then people are like, oh, I want to be sure. And so they respond. And look, hey, a response to the gospel is a wonderful response. Don't get me wrong. But should it be out of fear? And that's where I have a problem with some of those uh, appeals. With the traditional view, hell is punitive and there's no possibility of redemption ever. I was reading an article of this and really, seriously, I, I need to make sure I don't read stuff like this in bed, but I was reading an article on eternal conscious torment and, and, I, and it, rushed, it hit me that, you know, someone who dies and then they're in hell forever and ever and ever without the possibility of that ever changing. And I, and, I, and I literally, I slammed the paper down on the bed and I went, no, don't do that at home, okay? Don't read about hell in bed. I also, I read a book on hell when we were in uh, Malaysia on holiday a few years ago and it was hot in Malaysia and, and the book on hell was hot as well. So anyway, that's a little bit of insight into my mind. And so the, the possibility of no redemption ever and ever it, it, it just seems very unjust. So the second one is universalism, and this includes the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory um, that sees hell as a place of divine cleansing and ultimate redemption. So it's like a father disciplining his child. Hell is seen as a place where God corrects the wayward sinner until they see the error of their ways, uh, repents, and then asks for forgiveness. At that time, the person's punishment ends and they're allowed into the eternal kingdom of God because of the salvation Jesus has achieved for all people. And so in the end, Philippians 2 and verse 10 is fulfilled according to the universalists. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And universalists would use scriptures like that one and others that talk about the all-inclusiveness of the 
salvation that has been won through the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, that's interesting because under the earth is the way that people in the first century would have viewed hell. Notice there that, see, they used to believe the world was a flat disk. And so heavens, the heavens were above the earth. Earth was the flat disk where all the people lived. And then under the earth was the netherworld or the underworld or where the souls of humanity, particularly lost humanity, would go. And what we see here is that in the end, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So based on that, you know, universalism seems to seems to be quite a, a winning argument. Um, the Roman Catholic teaching on purgatory states the following, and I'm quoting here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offences can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. And so that, I guess, gives us a bit more insight into the Roman Catholic teaching on purgatory. Contemporary Roman Catholic theology, and I got this from my, my friend, around purgatory talks about it being a personal encounter with God in order to ready God's people for full union with him because of the effects of any unresolved sin that they may carry. Thus, um, to the modern Catholic, purgatory is an experience of cleansing through Christ. Modern theology dispels the ideas of painful fire, but rather speaks of purgatory at a moment when we are brought before the intense light of God, which burns away our blockages to him. Any pain would only be the pain of seeing our sin before the absolute goodness of God, which is now revealed to us in full light. And so that's what my uh, Roman Catholic priest friend uh, said to me when I asked him about purgatory. The last of these three views is annihilation or conditional immortality. And in this view of hell as a conditional or temporary situation for those who die without accepting Jesus' salvation, uh, this view is once again finding increasing support amongst those who find an inconsistency between the doctrines of eternal conscious torment and of a God of love, grace, and forgiveness. And I love John Stott. Um, John Stott was one of the evangelical church's most influential leaders of the 1900s, uh, the 20th century. An amazing man. I, I heard him speak in person in Western Australia as a new Christian. He was chaplain to the Queen uh, for quite a number of years and uh, a leading light uh, in the evangelical Anglican Church or the Church of England. And toward the end of his life, he leaned towards annihilationism or the conditionalist view. Uh, he wrote these words concerning eternal hell, and he actually copped a lot of flack for this just before he passed away. I find the concept intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. Fascinating words, and I resonate with that. You know, that, that night that I shared with you when I was reading about 
eternal conscious torment and thinking of the soul of a person being conscious and awake and feeling and being tormented and tortured for eternity without the possibility of an ending, I was cracking under the strain of thinking about that. And so what John Stott says here, you'd either crack under the strain or you'd have to cauterize your feelings. And quite honestly, I think a lot of Christians do that. I, I, I think we, we in the back of our minds, we think, oh, yeah, hell's forever, but we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to preach about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it because it's too horrible. Uh, to many people, ECT, eternal conscious torment, appears to be totally inconsistent with the character of God a God who asks us to forgive our enemies, to be merciful, to turn the other cheek. Does God not practice what he preaches? And from my personal view, I, I see eternal conscious torment these days as over-the-top punishment. Um, now, I, I think, you know, maybe maybe for someone like Hitler, you know, or someone really desperately evil and, and wicked, Maybe someone like that, but what about your average person who, well, they haven't accepted Jesus maybe, but they kind of lived a good life. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I think of, of my two grandmas who have uh, died. I led my dad's mum to the Lord when she was 80, and so I know where she is. But my mum's mum, I don't know whether she actually ever gave her life to Jesus. But But I would hate to think of my dear little nana, she was a little cockney woman. She was four foot 11. I would hate to think of her being burned alive in hell forever and ever and ever. And so it seems to be over the top. Um, when you think that Jesus took six hours on the cross to pay the price to die for everybody's sin, the sin of every person, past, present, and future, it took Jesus six hours to die for those things. If you would add his torturing on top of that, maybe a 24-hour period at the very most. And so what took Jesus a day, why does it take me all of eternity to pay for my temporal sins here on this planet if for whatever reason I haven't accepted Jesus or even haven't heard about Jesus? So when speaking of the fate of unrepentant people, the Bible uses interesting words. It talks about death, Ruin, perishing, and destruction. All of those things, if something has died, it's finished. If something is ruined or perished or destroyed, it's over. The symbolism of fire suggests being consumed rather than being endlessly tortured. And so in this view, eternal punishment refers to the results of the judgment being everlasting rather than the person being endlessly punished. Uh, one of the interesting things is that when it's talking about hell, it invariably will talk about the Twin Cities, the destruction of the Twin Cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's used as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude uh, verse 7, for example, talks about that. Now, if you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, those two cities were annihilated. The result of their punishment is eternal. They've never been rebuilt but those cities were annihilated, they ceased to be. Um, so ECT can be traced back to the philosopher Plato, who viewed the human soul as indestructible. But the Bible does not teach the immortality or the indestructibility of the human soul. In fact, the scriptures tell us 
in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16 that God alone has immortality. Only God is immortal. That's why eternal life is a gift that is granted to Jesus uh, is granted to Jesus followers because of Jesus' death and resurrection in which he tasted death for everyone, according to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. So where to from here? I've introduced you to eternal conscious torment, universalism, and annihilation. Um, I would encourage you to do your own reading and your own study. I think it's really helpful to be opened up to various views from Scripture. Uh, Go back to the Word of God. Dig into Scripture. Read some other books uh, as well. Uh, One book I'll recommend to you is The Four Views on Hell. Uh, It's the part of the Counterpoints series, um, and it's from Zondervan Printers. So The Four Views on Hell. You can order it online. Uh, You can read it on Kindle or book, and uh, that'll give you a little bit more detail excuse me, on on those things. So whatever you believe, and I'll finish with this, whatever you believe, never use it to generate fear in others or as an excuse to live a sloppy life. So don't dangle people over hell to frighten the life into them and to to force them to or to to encourage them to come to Jesus, okay? Jesus, when when the fear, if you use that approach, when when the fear... um, dissipates, their their commitment to Jesus will dissipate. We want to attract people to Jesus, you know, like like bees to honey. Um, also, you know, if, if hell is not eternal conscious punishment, that's not an excuse for me to live a sloppy life of sin here on this planet. Because remember, you God gives you over to reap the consequences of sin, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Uh, We don't love God because we want to escape from hell. We love him because he first loved us. And I think it's so very important uh, that we get all of that in perspective. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. I'll take this kind of line by line, this question. First of all, God does not rejoice uh, over the wicked. And I think it's really important that we understand that. And there's a, there's a couple of verses that I'll highlight for you. The first of them is in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23. And God is asking this here, a rhetorical question. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? So turn from their ways or or repent, change mind, change direction, and come back uh, into relationship. Uh, rhetorical questions, but but the inference from this is that God is pleased when people turn from their wickedness, turn from their evil ways, come back and experience life. Also in Ezekiel, a little bit later on, chapter 33 and verse 11, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, 
turn from your evil ways. And I love the way that's repeated uh, three times there, you know, just in case we didn't get it the first time or the second time. Well, there's always a third option. The questioner here talks about the person that killed Kylie Blackwood, and that person died yesterday morning. Uh, the, the guy's name is Scott Allen Murdoch. He was a notorious killer. He murdered Kylie Blackwood, uh, mum of three children, uh, left the three kids and, uh, and, and her husband, of course, uh, when she passed away in her Pakenham home back in 2013. It's likely that it was a botched burglary, that Murdoch didn't expect anyone to be home. And then when he found Kylie, well, Murdoch had a history of violence and he killed her. Murdoch was found dead in his cell at a maximum security prison yesterday morning. He was sentenced to life behind bars for stabbing two women. Uh, he left Kylie Blackwood, as I said, to die on her couch. Um, her two twin girls, uh, aged 11, found their mum uh, in agony, I believe, and then she passed away. Uh, he was also jailed for hammering a knife into the throat of, of a defenceless grandmother. And he did this while he was on parole for attacking another woman. This guy had a history of violence toward women. And so at his trial, he was given a non-parole period of 36 years. He would have been available or up for parole when he was 78 years of age. The judge noted that Murdoch was unlikely to be rehabilitated in jail and the community must be protected from him. She also said that Murdoch was a coward who had shown little remorse. He did, however, write uh, a statement in response to the victim impact statements. He said, I know I've destroyed uh, her, that is Mrs. Blackwood's husband and kid's life. I'm sorry. If I could take it back, I would. I hate myself for what has gone on. And so a few thoughts addressing this question of an evil person. When they die, should we be glad? We've already seen that God is not happy. He doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked uh, because he wants people to turn around from their wickedness and to come back into relationship with him. Let's look at a few things with regard to this question. First of all, the arrest of Jesus, I think, is really interesting uh, when we're addressing this as a topic. And Matthew 26, verses 51 to 53, tells us the story of one of Jesus' companions who reached for his sword when Jesus was being arrested. He drew it out. He struck the servant of the high priest and he cut off this guy's ear. Another gospel tells us that uh, the person that picked up the sword was Peter. No, no surprises, impetuous Peter, picked up his sword and he cut off the ear of Malchus, who was the servant of the high priest. Jesus, of course, as is reported in one of the other Gospels, then touched the side of Malchus's face and restored his ear uh, completely whole, as if it had never been cut off. You would think at that time too, wouldn't you, that everyone would go, oh my goodness, he really is the Messiah. This arrest is a bad idea. Let's not do it. But they went ahead with it anyway. Look at Jesus' response here. He says to Peter, put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Interesting statement. Jesus is actually quoting from a well-known play 
that was about 500 years old when Jesus was on the planet. The play was called Agamemnon, and it was the first of a trilogy of tragic dramas written by an ancient Greek playwright by the name of uh, Aeschylus. I hope I've got that pronunciation right. Maybe I have, maybe I haven't. And uh, Aeschylus said in this particular book, or this particular play, live by the sword, die by the sword, emphasising the irony and also the appropriateness of the means by which the king was killed by the queen in an act of vengeance in the play. And so Jesus, 500 years later, uh, obviously is aware of the play and quotes this. Uh, This is one of many quotations in the New Testament of secular sources. And so live by the sword, die by the sword was a well-known saying as a result of that 500-year-old play. So in the play, the king was killed by his queen in an act of vengeance against the cruelty of the king. And so live by the sword, die by the sword uh, is irony. It's um, and also appropriateness. This person had lived by the sword. They'd been violent And so finally, I don't know whether the king had been violent against his wife. I'm not sure whether that was domestic violence, but in some shape or form. And so in this play, the queen enacts the death penalty against her husband. And so I guess, you know, when we think of someone like Scott Allen Murdoch, who killed um, maimed the the grandmother who he stabbed is now 81. I read a quote from her today that said that she has lost all of her reason for living. She has lost her hope. Uh, how horrible for another human being to take somebody else's hope and to cause them to live uh, in fear and uh, and hopelessness in life. And so there is a sense of irony here. Uh, we don't know how uh, Scott Allen Murdoch died. I don't know whether he died by suicide, whether another prisoner killed him, uh, or whether he died of natural causes. There will be obviously an inquest now into his unexpected, untimely death. But there is that sense of irony, isn't there, when we hear of the death of a violent person that, well, he got what was coming to him. And it's based on that statement where Jesus quotes, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And so that's with regard to Jesus' arrest. There's also here the law of reciprocity, that is, that you reap what you sow. There's a reciprocal kickback in life of if you sow good stuff, good stuff comes back. Uh, If you sow humor, you bring joy, all of those things. If you sow violence, often violence is returned. Uh, And so people reap what they sow, at least they often do, not always, especially in this life. Uh, The psalmist David was mourning this in Psalm 73. He was basically, he was complaining to God. He was saying, why do the wicked prosper? Why, Why don't they have any problems and difficulties and all of this kind of stuff? So he has this bit of a whinge session in Psalm 73. And then he goes into the sanctuary, he starts to worship God, and he experiences the presence of God, and God changes his mindset. It's a wonderful psalm. Have a read of Psalm 73 when you get a moment. But 
David was looking at the life around him and he was going, you know, sometimes life is not fair. Uh, evil people prosper, good people suffer. Why is that? But it looks like Murdoch reaped what he sowed, definitely. So the second part of the question was, could you possibly explain the eye for an eye piece of scripture? That comes up a lot in cases such as this, but I think it's badly misinterpreted, and I certainly agree with you. If you look at the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, that's where the eye for an eye scripture is uh, first found in in the Hebrew scriptures. And uh, remembering here that what we're about to read was advanced for its time. So this is three, three and a half thousand years ago. So it's the ancient world. And so what we're reading here was advanced for its day. Some of the things that you'll read in Exodus 21, particularly around beating slaves and stuff like that, you sort of look at it and shake your head. But you've got to remember we're reading instructions to ancient people here and things have changed. In fact, even the scripture we're about to read was changed by Jesus. So Exodus 21 verses 22 to 24, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. So notice here, the woman is not her, her opinion is not sought. So she either gives birth prematurely, by the way, or she miscarries as a result. And so a fine is paid and the, and the husband decides or, and the court allows. Verse 23 of Exodus 21, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So we look at that and we go, oh my goodness, you know, that some of that sounds horrendous. You know, if uh, if you cause an accident and someone's eye is lost, then they or a family member can come and gouge out one of your eyes, uh, which is still practiced in some countries t- today. But when we hear about it, we think, oh my goodness, how primitive that is, and and rightly so. And so those those verses in Exodus twenty one are outdated. In fact, they were outdated by the time Jesus was on the planet. And so you'll find out uh, if you read in Matthew chapter 5 and uh, verse 38 to 39, here you see Jesus teaching, you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And there's a whole lot of teaching we could go into uh, there as well. But what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus changes some of the Hebrew scriptures. So he said, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And he doesn't quote the whole verse, but foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. So if someone is evil towards you, don't return evil back to them, is what Jesus is teaching. He says, turn the other cheek. Remember, we looked at the way that Jesus either changed or ceased or continued the truth that we find in the Hebrew scriptures. Some of it he changed, as we see there in Matthew chapter 5. Some of it he ceased, like the food rules, like circumcision, etc. And some of it was continued. And we use the examples of uh, worship and tithing uh, 
those truths were continued. Um, I also want to say here with regard to the judgment of God, I think this is a really important statement. And if you want to grab a Bible or if you read on your phone, if you want to find Romans chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to read this with you, Romans chapter 1. There's a really important truth here with regards to the judgment of God, and that is that Murdoch's death is not the direct judgment of God. Uh, In fact, in the New Testament, what we find is a progressive revelation of God's judgment. And this is really important because when you read the Hebrew scriptures, God appears to be very judgmental, wrathful. Um, He he says to people like Moses and Joshua, I want you to kill all of these people, all of that. But what we find is in Scripture, the arc of Scripture or this progressive revelation or a trajectory of truth where, where it, we see an improvement um, of revelation. And it's so important that we understand this because if we don't understand this, it almost appears like there were two gods so we have the God of the Old Testament who was angry, um, judgmental, always always getting at people, sometimes loving, sometimes kind, sometimes the other way. Not really sure how he is. But then the revelation of, of God in Jesus, God in human form, was was of, of love and justice and kindness and goodness and mercy. And so it wasn't two gods. What it is, what we see in Jesus is what God is really like. And so when it comes to the judgment of God or the wrath of God in Scripture, it's actually more about God not intervening in the normal flow of life. What we see is actually God handing people over to sin's consequences. And it's really important that we understand this and we find this repeatedly through Scripture. So in Romans 6.23, we'll get back to Romans 1 in just a moment. Romans 6.23 is really important truth. It says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at that. The wages of sin is death. So what penalty does sin pay? It it pays death. Okay, So it's not God who is causing death because of our sin, but it is our sin that causes death. But then God gets involved in the picture with the next statement, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we continue in our sin, we reap death. If we relinquish our life to Jesus Christ, then we reap eternal life because of Jesus. And I think that's really important that we understand that. So God is not judging through anger. He is just not intervening in the normal flow of life, okay? He's he's not intervening in the consequences that sin brings. And so with that in mind, let's read some of Romans chapter 1, and we'll pick it up from verse 18, where it talks about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now, often if you stop there, you think, okay, God is really angry, God is ticked, and he's on a mission to destroy. But that's not what we read here, because he's not the destroyer. Remember Jesus said, the thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. He said, I have come, God, in human form, I have come to give life and that to the full or abundant life. 
It's uh, zoe in the in the Greek. It actually means absolute life or life which contains no death. So God is not wrathful and judging and enacting anger on people, but he doesn't stop the consequences that our sin brings upon us. And this is really important. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And then Paul tells us how God has made his um, qualities plain to us. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So the creation itself speaks. God is invisible. His qualities are invisible. We can't see his eternal power. We can't see his divine nature. But when we open our eyes and we look at the creation around us, the eternal power and the divine nature of God are clearly seen. We understand them from the things that God has made. And so, you know, I know people say there's no God, but when you look around at the creation, I mean, for example, if I, if I was able to make a perfect working model of the solar system and I brought it into Bayside Church on a Sunday morning, I had it operating in the foyer, people are walking in and they're looking here and they're going, wow, this is amazing. And, and I'm standing there, I said, yeah, isn't it, isn't it incredible, you know, knowing all the time that I'd actually made this, not that I have the ability to, but this is an illustration. Um, and, and then they say to me, so, well, that's an incredible um, working model of the solar system. Who made it? And then if I said, no one made it, they wouldn't believe me. Of course somebody made it. Look at it. It works perfectly. Someone made it. Who made it? Nobody. Oh, come on. Someone had to have made it. Yeah, okay, I made it. Now they really won't believe me. <laughs> but someone had to make it. And so when we look at creation, the Bible says we clearly see that God is real, his eternal power, his divine nature. We understand these things so that we are all without an excuse about saying whether there's a God or not. So pick it up from verse 21 for, of uh, Romans 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, this is a very important part of Romans chapter 1. In this part of Romans chapter 1, it's evident that Paul is speaking into the culture of his day, which was rife with idolatry. Now, he's writing this to the Roman church. They were right in the centre of Rome, uh, which was a centre of idolatry. In fact, all the big cities in the first century, they were all centres of idolatry. Ephesus, Corinth, they all had their pagan temples um, with lots of idols. They made, they had many gods. They uh, made idols of uh, birds, animals, reptiles, human beings, and they believed that everything had a spirit. So a river had a spirit trees had a spirit, fields, even buildings had a spirit. So they were full of idolatry. 
And so the whole context of Romans 1 is about idolatry, and it's important that we understand that because otherwise we'll pick a little verse here and a little verse there, and, and then we don't understand the context of it and we lose what Paul is trying to communicate. So he's really speaking into the idolatry in the first century world. So pick it up from verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual imp- impurity, etc. So notice that this is the first of three times that Paul says this in Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them over. And this is important because, as I said before, the wrath of God or the judgment of God is not about an angry God exacting pain on people. God didn't move into Murdoch's cell yesterday and go, I'm judging you, I'm killing you, okay? He's the giver of life, not the taker of life. What God doesn't do is that when someone persists in sin, he doesn't um, stop the consequences the natural consequences of their sin. It's like Jesus saying, live by the sword, die by the sword. So if you live a violent life, the likelihood is you're going to die a violent death. And so that's what Paul was talking about here. So God gave them over. He didn't intervene. He said, well, you want to sin in that way, keep sinning. Um, The sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And so, again, he's talking about idolatry. Then he talks about some of the specifics with regard to idol, idolatrous worship in the first century, and this was in Rome, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in all of the major centres. Because of this, God gave them over gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. What Paul is talking about here is the temple prostitution uh, that went on in the idolatrous temples. So the whole context is idols. In this particular case, in Rome, it was the temple of Venus. And uh, in the temple of Venus, there were male and female prostitutes. And as part of their worship ritual, people would go into the temple. They would make an offering uh, to one of the gods or many of the gods, whichever god or gods they wanted to appease. Uh, They would give a monetary offering as well which would then give them access to temple prostitutes, which, and so they would have sex either, you know, I mean, pick male prostitute or a female prostitute. Sometimes it was women with women, sometimes men with men, sometimes men and women. Um, And so uh, that would be then their so-called act of worship to their God. And Paul is addressing this head on. In verse 28, he says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, and then look at this, for the third time in Romans 1, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. So they continue to persist in their sin, and we see this giving over, giving over, giving over. Uh, You know, so 
And then it goes on in verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And then Paul does what they would do in the first century. He'd have a sin list, which is not a complete list of every sin, but he would start to list various sins that were big in his day. And some of them, sadly, are still big in our day as well. Look at this. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, still plenty of gossips around, even in the church, sadly. Uh, Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. See, the wages of sin is death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. They cheer other people on uh, in their sinfulness as well. So what we see there is God's judgment or God's wrath is giving people over to the natural consequences of sinful actions. The wages of sin is death. Uh, Scott Allen Murdoch, uh, he yesterday reaped the penalty of his sins. He died. And, uh, and so wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and we need to quote that whole verse. So often I hear people say, oh yeah, the wages of sin is death. death. That's the bad news. That's just half the verse, half the sentence. The good news is that the gift of God, where God gets involved is by giving a, the gift of eternal life that's available for every person in Christ Jesus our Lord. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Digging Deeper is a weekly podcast that is uploaded every Wednesday. If you have a question or topic that you'd like Rob to speak into, get in touch with us via Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. Next week, Pastor Rob will be digging deeper into Genesis chapter 6 and explores the identity of the sons of God. Were there really giants on earth before Noah's flood? We hope you can join us then. 